everyone else is quaking in their boots, right? Only David steps forward. Now, he doesn't step forward foolishly. He uses his brain and his wits to figure out, oh, okay, what I'm going to do is change the rules and bring this weapon. But what fires him, what gives him purpose and meaning and courage is the fact that God is in his heart and he understands the power that gives him. Reflecting on the classic story in the Old Testament of the Bible, David and Goliath, that is our guest for today's broadcast, Malcolm Gladwell. You'll hear a unique spin on that familiar story as he talks with Focus President and author Jim Daly. I'm John Fuller, and we had the chance to interview Malcolm Gladwell a few months ago in New York City. We did, John, and it was fascinating. I so enjoyed the conversation. I've read other books that he's written, uh, mostly, again, for a secular audience. He's a New York Times bestseller, and that's part of what intrigued me. Um, He has made a recommitment to the Lord, and he talked about that in our interview, and he talked about writing David and Goliath, and those things that he uniquely picks up. He is a person of observation, and he highlights things that you just slide by and you miss. And I think you're all going to really enjoy that perspective and what he sees in the story of David and Goliath. And in addition to that particular book, Malcolm has also written uh, Tipping Point, Outliers, and the book called Blink. And he grew up in a small Mennonite community in Ontario, Canada. His mother is Jamaican and his dad English. And he moved away and kind of drifted away from his faith for a season. But it was while he was writing David and Goliath that he came back to that faith. Well, and he credits his mom uh, with giving him the inspiration to write at all. And uh, write he has. His books have sold over 10 million copies. And this is one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. And I love that intersection of faith and observation. The story of David and Goliath is only a small part of the conversation. He brings in a lot of other examples in everyday modern life that proves the points and the observations that he's making. Well, let's go ahead and hear the conversation with Malcolm Gladwell on today's Focus on the Family. You've had a fascination, even from a young age, about uh, the sciences and academic research and how that all kind of intersects in life. Mm-hmm. Um, just recently, I was at Georgetown University with uh, the sociologist from Harvard, Robert Putnam, mm-hmm. and we were discussing his research on the breakdown of the family. Mm-hmm. And what I was thrilled as a Christian to see is how much of the data supports the position that we have had. that the best thing we can do to reduce poverty is to keep families together. And I have that same fascination that you've expressed. Talk about that um, as you see social science and other sciences kind of bolstering um, Mm -hmm. biblical Mm -hmm. positions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I think, um, and this is really one of the themes I was really interested in in David and Goliath, was in trying to understand the power of faith, spirit, courage, determination, these things that aren't measurable, um, but that on reflection turn out to be enormously um, predictive of people's happiness and success. And um, and one of the things that, as you, I think, correctly point out is that slowly, but I think surely, social science is losing its exclusive focus on the measurable things, your mm. IQ, the income of your parents, the, you know, the desirability of your zip code, and focusing more on the importance of the unmeasurable things. And that is, you're absolutely right, that is, to my mind, one 
that's one of the central themes of scripture is that very point, that it's this stuff that's sort of in the ether that you can't put your finger on that makes the ultimate difference in how people turn out and how well they live their lives. Mm. Um, and it's frustrating to, to social scientists because they want something they can measure, right? They can point to. And if you're going to talk about courage, faith, determination, all those kinds of things, there's no t paper and pencil test you can use to mm. say that I've got a score of seven and someone else has got a score of nine. And so it's hard for them to make the transition. It seems soft, you know? Uh, yeah, unscientific. Unscientific, but it's, it ought not to be. Let's talk about David and Goliath. Let's mm -hmm. talk about that story because that's yeah. the core of your book. Although for the listener, there are so many great chapters, all the chapters we could do a broadcast on. Mm -hmm. And it's not all just about David and Goliath. It's about big things and how you conquer them in your life. Mm -hmm. And I thought the application that you provide all of the applications, education and just overcoming these uh, difficulties in life were fascinating to me. But talk about the core story of David and Goliath yeah. and what you say, how many of us miss what God may be telling us in the story. Yeah, yeah. Mm. well, there, David and Goliath is a, you know, if I was going to write a book on underdogs, I have to deal with the great underdog story of all time, right? So I, you know, I go back and I uh, start to read it more closely than I have normally read it, and at the same time began talking to people, to scholars about, it, and discovered there's a whole rich backstory behind so David and Goliath. So it's important to remember a couple of things. One is that David's sling is not a child's toy. It's one of the most crucial weapons used by ancient armies. And in the hands of someone who knows what he's doing, it's an unbelievably devastating weapon. In fact, you called them slingers. Is They're that called right? slingers. Armies had whole groups of slingers that they would use as their artillery. And the, a rock leaving a sling um, departs with the force of a bullet leaving a handgun. I mean, it's not That's a... That's amazing. It, oh, it, it will knock you dead if you... So David's not like... It's not, you know, when people read that story, sometimes I think without that context, they think, oh, it's this improbable fairy tale. The kid with the slingshot, not a slingshot, a sling, not a fairy tale. Kid with a devastating weapon, right? The other thing that's fascinating is Goliath. Goliath's behavior in that story is strange. He's led down onto the battlefield floor by someone, as if by the hand, by a, an attendant, as if he's like, wait a minute, this is the most powerful warrior in you know, that entire, why is he being led by the hand? And then he's constantly saying to David, come to me, right? And if you, there's a bunch of other clues as well. If you put them all together, a bunch of people have begun to speculate whether Goliath wasn't suffering from a condition called acromegaly, which is... Is the cause of giantism. People who have overproduction of their pituitary gland can grow to enormous height. All the biggest giants in history have had this condition called acromegaly. Right. It comes with a side effect, and the side effect is often restricted eyesight. And all those clues in the story suggest that Goliath can't see. He, and when he says to David, come to me, he means come closer. I can't see you out there, right? Mm. And to my mind, that's a crucial part of the story because... What is that scriptural story telling us? It's telling us that the very thing that we are so in awe of, someone's size, may also be the cause of their greatest weakness. That with, with all the things that come with being a giant, there is a cost, and that is we, a blindness, right? You're 
blinded by all of your worldly power and your glittering armor and your sword, and you can't see the kid coming at you who's changed the rules without telling you, right? That story is so much more powerful to me once I understood that because it's, what is God telling us? God is telling us, don't be in awe of the giant, right? David's the only one who says, I'm not... I'm not impressed by the fact the guy's enormous and has all his armor on because, for all I know, he could be blind, right? I Absolutely. Mean, and it doesn't diminish God's part in that story. No. Some Christians might think, well, now you're taking this miracle and diminishing it mm-hmm. to actually David having the advantage. Yeah. That's not what you're yeah. saying. Oh, because what I'm saying is, I mean, to me, it, it accentuates the role of God in the story because what is the thing that David has that allows everything to happen? He has the Spirit of the Lord in his heart. It's all about this intangible thing. Everyone else is quaking in their boots, Mm. right? Only David steps forward. Now, he doesn't step forward foolishly. He uses his brain and his wits to figure out, oh, okay, what I'm going to do is change the rules and bring this weapon. But what fires him, what gives him purpose and meaning and courage is the fact that God is in his heart and he understands the power that gives him, right? Later on in the book, I tell the story of a little group of Christians in France of Huguenots who lived in the mountains of southern France and who defy the Nazis and openly take in uh, Jewish refugees throughout the entire war and end up saving thousands of lives. And they tell the Nazis that. They say, look, we're taking them in. And you can come and you can try and find them. We're going to hide them. We don't care what you do. This is our Christian duty, right? It's an incredible story. And to me, the great question of that is, Here are these Christians in this little town in France who do this. There are lots of other Christians in France, worship the same God, read the same Bible, who don't do this. What's the difference? And the difference is that those Christians in that little town, those Huguenots, understood the power that their faith in God gave them. They understood it wasn't this abstract thing. It was real, Hmm. right? That in the face of the Spirit of the Lord, even the most powerful nastiest army in the world, the Nazis, paled. It wasn't a fair fight anymore, right? Right. David has that same spirit in his heart. He understands, I'm not a kid anymore if I have God on my side. Was there anything in that story with the Huguenots that pointed to why the Nazis wouldn't go into their town or village and go after them? Were they... Uh, fearful, or they just look the other way, or did they say, well, this is the Huguenots, we're not going to be able to root them out? The Huguenots were a group of Christians who had been historically persecuted in France for hundreds of years. They had been through the ringer over and over again. They had been uh, hounded, uh, murdered, chased into the mountains, their children taken away from them, their wives put in prison, their pastors strung up on... um, you know, hung from, they'd seen the worst. So the first thing was the Nazis came along and they were like, you're not as, you know, this is like just another in a series of things we've dealt with successfully in the past. God has protected us in the past. You can't scare us. So that's, you understand, a lot of what the work the Nazis did, did they did because they intimidated people, right? These guys weren't intimidated. Secondly, they're up in the mountains, and they're awfully wily. You know, the last thing an occupying army in France wants in 1942 is to get locked up in a long, drawn-out conflict with a group of people who know what they're doing and can just melt into the woods, right? So the Nazis are not dumb. 
They don't want to get, you know, uh, tied up in knots. But they also were genuinely perturbed, and they would send the French police into this town time and time again to find to try and find these Jewish refugees, and somebody would, you know, they'd see them coming up the mountain. Somebody would tip them off, and the Huguenots would take their these kids they were hiding and just spirit them away into the woods. I mean, it was like cat and mouse. Yeah, in fact, in your book, I remember a quote in that context, in that story, where you said that um, once people made the decision, they had to help the Jews. I mean, that really caught my attention. It was this wrestling with what's the right moral thing to do, but then once they decided who is not going to help the Jews, uh, they kicked into action. Yeah, Uh, That shows a lot of courage. Yeah, it was... And I think as well it was, uh, it wasn't a story about one man or woman standing up against the Nazis. It was a story of a community informed by their faith standing up to the Nazis. And that is a really, really crucial thing. Mm. Because it's in, you can't ask one person to stand up all by themselves. And that's, sometimes when we think about courage, we make it so unrealistic. It's impossible. You, one person can't do that. But a uh, group who are uh, grounded in in generations of religious faith and belief, they can do it. Yeah, that's when the power... I mean, it's a reminder of that faith needs a concrete form to be powerful. And some of these examples, you know, they sound very distant, lofty, you know, whether we're talking about the Huguenots in World War II or David and Goliath 3,000 years ago. Um, Bring it home, because your book used so many modern examples. In fact, one that resonated with my heart uh, was Eisenstadt's um, observation of children who lose a parent. I lost both my parents when I was nine and then when I was 12, Mm -hmm. my mom and dad. It put me into foster care, Mm -hmm. and I often draw on those lessons that I learned in that environment. I think it it makes me a better person, even though it was terribly difficult yeah. to go yeah. through that. But I resonated mm-hmm. with that aspect of your book, mm-hmm. those things that you learn mm-hmm. in difficulty. Yeah. And for me, it, it was I seemed to be the adult at nine, mm-hmm. and people around me that were much older seemed unable to know what truth was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I resonated with that. But talk about that yeah. kind of application. Yeah, so this is this really, I have a chapter in a book where I talk about what is the role that adversity plays in greatness, in, in extraordinary success. And there's been a number of really fascinating studies that have looked at, you know, one study just started with people who are in the encyclopedia, who, may, you know, who have accomplished enough in their life to have made it into the encyclopedia. Or they look at, British prime ministers or American presidents or any group of people who've accomplished something great, what do they have in common? The answer is very little, except the one thing that comes up again and again and again is what an extraordinarily disproportionate number of them have, as you said, lost at least one parent in childhood. And that's interesting because losing a parent as a child is just about the most devastating thing that can happen. And we are fully acquainted with the bad case scenario from that, if you go to prisons, if you go to any place where, where you find lots of people who have been crushed by the world, you will find lots of people who lost a parent in childhood. It's, it can be a devastating blow from which people don't recover. But at the same time, 
there is a significant percentage of people who suffer that blow and come out stronger as a result, who find in their adversity a way to, to locate and develop their own strengths, who develop skills they would never otherwise have been able to develop, who are forced to grow up faster, that's what you were talking about, than they would otherwise have, have grown up. Um, so out of that harrowing experience of losing a parent, they have discovered something in themselves as a source of, of strength mm. um, and learned a lesson that they would never otherwise have had to learn. I think so often it is that God factor. I mean, mm-hmm. people will say, how did you get through that? And mm-hmm. uh, I can't answer that question, really. Yeah. I just know that it gave me, it gave me resilience, yeah. tenacity. Um, the other aspects of the book, and we're going fast, and I apologize, but the book is so good, um, it's hard to, yeah. to cover in just a little while. Education is mm-hmm. something important to all of us. Um, I was fascinated by a number of your observations when it came to education, the inverted U curve and Mm -hmm. that one student sacks. And there's so many examples there. Talk about education and the way we need to maybe rethink Mm -hmm. how we look at education for our children. Yeah. And I talk about this in the context of college, that we're obsessed with the notion that the best thing for a child is to go to the most selective, prestigious college he or she can get into. And the, that notion is false. That if you send a child to a very, very selective school, that has the effect, unless they're Albert Einstein at the top of their class, that has the effect of limiting their options. Because, you know, I, I have a whole chapter with this brilliant a young woman who goes to Brown University, an Ivy League school. She wants to study science, and she is in a class. If you go to Brown and you study science, everyone else in that in your class is a genius. And so she thinks, I can't do science. And so she ends up dropping out of science and ending up in a major that she's not in love with. And that's that would not have happened if she'd gone to a school that wasn't the absolute best school she could get into. Well, and you got to do justice to that story because her scores were really strong. Oh, uh, she's this is a child who's kid who's in the 99th percentile, but she went to a school that was in the 99.9th percentile. What she did in other words is she overvalued the prestige of the institution she went to and didn't understand that prestige comes with a cost and the cost is freedom. It's the freedom to pursue the thing you want to pursue. You know, she. you go to a school where you can be in the top half of the class, where you're not overwhelmed by your peers. You can take a chance. You can take a course that, you know, maybe you're not going to be the best in the world at, but you can learn a lot and you're not going to feel, be overwhelmed by your peers. You know, it's not this relentless pursuit of the absolute most exclusive prestigious experience for our kids is a problem, mm. right? It has the effect of we're turning out lots and lots of people who go to fancy schools and are demoralized by the experience. And what you said in the book, which I thought was profound, those kids that are high performers who end up in the middle section of the class at a Ivy League school, uh, if they would have chosen a different school, would be at the top, and it impacted their confidence. Yeah. Speak about that, because that's so critical. It's not just what yeah. you achieve, but who you think of yourself as a person as a successful person, how did it impact Miss Sachs? Well, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about these intangibles and how 
crucial they are. What we now understand is that in those in that crucial period of late adolescence, early 20s, something central is going on, and that is that we are forming a sense of who we are, what we're good at. Um, we're forming our sort of self-confidence, and we haven't paid enough attention to that crucial moment of sort of self-formation. Um, and when you throw a child into an overwhelming academic environment in that crucial moment of self-formation, you can do some damage, right? You can overwhelm. And that's what this, I, I, I profiled this young woman named Carolyn Sachs, who was this brilliant student from a small town in Maryland who had a choice between the University of Maryland and Brown and wanted to be a scientist and end up chose, went to Brown and dropped out of science in her sophomore year because she was in that crucial moment of self-formation and she sat in her orga- organic chemistry class at the age of 19 and said, I can't do it. And if she had been in an organic chemistry class at University of Maryland, chances are she would have said, I can do it. Mm. And by the way, when you're 25 and 30 and you're out in the world, nobody cares where you went to college anymore. No one's asking me where I went to college. Right? I don't even care where you guys went to college. What I see are two people who have succeeded in the world and are doing something meaningful. So, you know, you, you passed through that crucial period and you came out intact, right? We're overvaluing the brand names of mm. schools and we're forgetting that what is the function of a school? It's not a trophy to hang on our wall. It's a place to learn who we are, mm. right? Mm. And that's a lesson that needs to be shouted from the mountaintops in this country we're so obsessed with. It's counterintuitive, but I get it. Take it home for me. I mean, I've, I've got a child we're looking at a middle school selection. There are several charter schools we're looking at. Mm-hmm. I also uh, have a daughter that really had a difficult time her mm-hmm. freshman year at a somewhat prestigious college. Yeah. It was a reach for her to get there. Mm-hmm. She came back and said, I, I know what I can't do, and it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So where, where's the balance between setting our kids up in the right environment and, and letting them flounder a bit and perhaps pick up some of those valuable life skills that happen when you hit obstacles. What's the balancing point if there is one? Well, and to see that as part of the learning process, yeah. that yeah. failure is okay. Because yeah. my heart is, oh, let's put all the tools in place for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. A, I mean, I think it's important to remember that there is no rule for every child, right? No, the same rules do not apply to all children. So, you know, one of what parents have to do is evaluate their own children on a kind of as individuals, what is what do I think is best for my? All I'm saying is that we we have to stop using the prestige of institutions, educational institutions, as a variable in this equation. Uh, Malcolm, like I said at the beginning, your book is so interesting. We could spend hours talking about every chapter. Uh, we've got to come back next time and uh, keep talking about it. Can you do that? I would love to. Some really interesting insights about the value or the non-value that we place on education. 
Uh, we've been talking with Malcolm Gladwell on today's Focus on the Family with Jim Daly. Uh, John, Malcolm is fascinating, and I'm sure that he's given all of us uh, some food for thought on how we can uh, view advantages and disadvantages, which in this culture today, we need a biblical reference for that, how we need to see God working in the circumstances that he places us in and uh, turn that into something for good. Like Romans 8.28 says, he works all things for good to those who love the Lord and are called by his name. You think about that, that's a tough scripture to live by, but I think Malcolm is providing a window for us to look through. Our program was provided by Focus on the Family. And on behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening. I'm John Fuller. Malcolm Gladwell spoke with incredible insight as he relayed the story of David and Goliath after having studied the history of that time. And I was fascinated by his analogies. He touched on some pretty tough issues and tomorrow we'll hear the conclusion of the program. So be sure to tune in for that. Please remember that our daily broadcast can be listened to on our website at safamily.co.za, via podcast or through our Focus Africa app. If you haven't already downloaded our app, I really encourage you to do that. You can see the range of programs available, read the latest articles, and share the content with your friends and family. It's available for both iPhone and Android. Just be sure to search for Focus on the Family Africa. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Graham Schnell for Focus on the Family Africa, hoping that you'll join us next time when we'll once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. 